want to invite you to open in God's Word this morning to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. And before we uh, spend a bit of time in Isaiah 57, I want to share a little bit about how my morning went today. Would that be okay? So I I wake up uh, very early, as I do uh, typically, and I I had a thought. And one of the first thoughts that ran through my mind is I visualized the muffin table. Yeah. As I said to myself, you have to understand, my weakness is donuts and muffins. Yeah. Whoa. So I said to myself, I'm not, I'm not going to touch any of the muffins at the muffin table. I'm going to discipline myself, going to be a, a good steward of my body, and I'm going I'm to wait and have a good lunch. Aren't you proud of me? Yeah, okay, good. Two of you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, so I, I, got to, I got to Veritas this morning, and I walked up to the podium. Yeah, yeah. where's he at? Nate, where are you at? How come I don't see? There he is. And I walk up to the podium, and there's a little note, and it's it's not man writing; it's woman writing. You know how you can tell? Yeah, it's not man writing. So it's, I know it's not from Nate, and it says, "Dave, Nate thought of you this morning with a smiley face, and underneath a napkin is this massive Bismarck." <laughs> And so I was going to do an object lesson and bring it to you and show it to you this morning, but it disappeared. (laughs) So thanks, Nate. I I appreciate that. All discipline went out the window. Well, we worship a a majestic and a, uh, a great God, do we not? Yet churches all across the land and Christ followers who fill those churches are slowly... Uh, moving away from a biblical view of God. A.W. Tozer wrote about this problem over 50 years ago in his classic little book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what Tozer said. He said, The Christian conception of God, current in these middle years of the 20th century, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. That's 50 years ago. Now come to the present day. There is a book that is scheduled to be released in the next few weeks. And within that book contains these words. The author says, but it is my conviction that what has been lost is a robust, fully orbed view of the biblical God. A God who is wonderfully Trinitarian and who alone can act to be free, free the church from its self-imposed cultural captivity. Another writer in the same vein says this, wrong ideas about God are not only the the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. You know, last week, as Saturday evening uh, came around, I... uh, had spent some time preparing to preach and spent some time reviewing my notes in Veritas, and I was very excited to watch the Husky game. And as I looked on my phone and looked at my, uh, my TV Guide app, it said, uh, well, I couldn't find anywhere where it was on TV, and I was so looking forward to the game, and so I was a bit frustrated. 
fact, I was a little bit on the angry side. I couldn't believe I couldn't watch the Huskies play on Saturday evening. And so I, I must confess something else to you today. We moved from donuts to something else that... As I scrolled through and I looked on the television, I couldn't find anything I was interested in watching. And so I decided to watch a little bit of a, a Joel Osteen. And I, I, I must confess that I have never made it through a complete sermon. And there are reasons for that. And on this particular occasion, I made it about two minutes when Joel Osteen said that God would never condemn anyone. That's when I shut it off. And I thought to myself, where, where is Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that says, The wages of sin is death. John chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus himself says that, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, wrong ideas about God are infiltrating the church. And I believe that we are just beginning to see the troubling consequences of these weak and these tepid views of God. Here in our day, we are hearing of God less. We study about God less. We pray to God less. And we talk about God less. You might say that God now is in the framework of God light. When we do talk about God, our ideas typically about him tend to be half-baked and unbiblical. We neglect the attributes that he rightly possesses. And we are in the habit of twisting other attributes and creating a little G-O-D, a little God that sympathizes with our sinful proclivities. And here is the biggest tragedy. We have not only created a, a God who does not match the biblical God of the Bible, but our worship is on the slide. Our worship is declining. A.W. Tozer warned us of this decline once again in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines... The church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. And then Tozer utters these words that I hope will capture your attention and grab your affections and alert you to the problem before us. He says the, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. And so we continue as a church family to search the scriptures to learn about the God of wonders. The title of the message today is God is absolute and personal. And what we're going to see today is that to to view God as such is very, very important in the Christian life. We will see that some view God as only absolute. We will also see that some view God as only personal. And it's imperative that we recognize that God is, is absolute and personal. Whenever we minimize one or maximize the other, we have an unbalanced and, dare I say, an unbiblical portrait of God. And so I want to begin at the beginning by looking at the absolute God. I want to gaze for a few moment, moments at the absolute God and point out three very specific qualities that God possesses. 
The first is this. The absolute God is utterly transcendent. God is transcendent. And I would encourage you to, to do this, whether physically in your, or in your mind's eye. Transcendent is not a word we typically use much in our culture anymore. But when you hear the word, whether you hear it from this pulpit or read it in a book or hear someone else talking about it, or if you merely think about it, do this with your hands. God is transcendent. That will help you remember the, the big idea of transcendence. When we say that God is transcendent, we mean this, that he is over and above the scope of the universe. He is over and above his creation. He is distinct and independent from his creation, as we have seen in other studies. The great Dutch statesman, which in this community should cause many of you to be very excited, the great Dutch states, statesman, uh, Abraham Kuyper, said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which, over Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. As the transcendent God is over and above the scope of creation, he looks down upon his creation and he sees the nations. He sees the people within the nations. He sees his beautiful creation. He sees his creatures. He sees everything below him. And he says, that belongs to me. The scripture is filled with supporting statements of this attribute of transcendence. Here, if you would turn with me, if you're not already there, to Isaiah chapter 57. And I want to encourage you to be on the lookout. To be on the lookout for language that points to transcendence. And you will see some of it here in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one, get ready, who is what? High and lifted up. What's that sound like? That sounds like transcendence. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Let's stop there. I want you to see that this section of scripture is absolutely soaked in the language of transcendence. God is the king. He is high. He is holy. He is above the scope of all of his creation. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 and look at verse 10. More language of transcendence. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. That's the language of transcendence. That he is mighty. That as we learned last week, he is omnipotent. He is able to do everything within the scope of his will. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now come with me to Acts chapter 17, a, a section of scripture that we have visited often over the last several months. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. As you turn there, you remember that Paul now is in the city of Athens. Athens is a major metropolitan area. It's, a, it's an arena where the philosophers are, are they, they love to, to, uh, to gather there. They love to uh, talk about the latest ideas. 
And here Paul says something very interesting to this group of philosophers. Verse 24, the God who made the world. And we don't even have to continue at that point. And we recognize there's the language of transcendence. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being the Lord of heaven and earth. Does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Look over with me at verse 30. Verse 30 of Acts 17. Paul continues, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, notice the language of transcendence, he commands... All people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, namely Jesus Christ, whom he he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In Psalm chapter 113, we read this. The Lord is high above all the nations, and His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? So in in your time, in your daily time, when when you read the Word of God, and I trust you are doing just that, you will run across these passages where you will recognize the language of transcendence. Genesis 14 calls God the Most High. He is the... The possessor of heaven and earth, our great God who is absolute, is the God who is utterly transcendent. There's a second quality I want you to see, and that is that the absolute God is preeminent. He is preeminent. The word preeminent means above people. It means to be above all others, to excel all others. It means to be prominent. It means the surpassing one. Jonathan Edwards recognized this qualification, this attribute of preeminence, and he wrote this. Christ is the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and does whatsoever pleases him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and which none can circumvent. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. When I say awful, I mean awesome. His majesty is awesome. And once again, as we discover the absolute God, who is the God of preeminence, we search the scriptures to find a a whole array of evidence for this. Isaiah 40 puts it like this. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and on high see who created these He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power. Notice transcendence. It's dripping throughout this passage. He says, not one is missing. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
This is the God who is described in Scripture as preeminent. In Isaiah 44, we read this, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me since I appointed. And by the way, there's more language of transcendence. I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? Are you not my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock I know not of any. Now would you turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. To the book of Colossians. And I want you to see now in, in stark relief the language of preeminence. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, a, a verse that is a, a massively Christocentric passage that discusses how Jesus Christ is the one who created the cosmos. Jesus Christ is the one who sustains all things. And why did he do it? He did it for the praise of his glory. Look now at verse 18. And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. He might be preeminent. And so we see that that the absolute God is not only utterly transcendent, he is the preeminent one. But there's a third quality I want you to see. Namely, God, the God who is absolute, has supreme authority. He has supreme authority. That is to say, nothing rivals the supreme authority of our God. No nation, no no, uh, nation's ruler, Vladimir Putin can't hold a candle to the sovereign God. There is not a leader in the civilized world who holds a candle to the sovereign God. God's authority is supreme above all things and all peoples. A.W. Pink put it like this. He said, because God is God... That's always a good way to begin begin a quote, is it not? Because God is God, he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. His great concern is the accomplishment of his own pleasure and the promotion of his own glory, that he is the supreme being and therefore the sovereign of the universe. In the book of Job, we learn much about the sovereignty of God, about the absolute authority of this great king. In Job chapter 41, we read that no one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is it who can stand before the living God? In Job 37, we read, From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. Can you picture that? By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for land or for love, he causes it to happen. 
Hear this, O Jacob. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And here in really one sentence, we see the transcendence, the preeminence, and the absolute authority of God surface. Now, as we consider the absolute nature of God, I want to take a few minutes and and grapple with this reality. I want to grapple with the implications of what it means to, to come before and worship this absolute God. And I hope you will stand with me this morning and you will see that the implications of this absolute God are rather astounding. Notice a few things. One, this absolute God holds all things together. The one who is absolute holds all things together. One moment ago, we read Colossians 1 verse 18 that said that Jesus is the preeminent one. Just above verse 18, here's what we read. For by him, and him as we've seen in other studies, points to Jesus Christ. It does not point to the Father. It does not point to the Spirit. It points to Jesus Christ. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And notice, in Him, once again, Jesus, in Jesus, all things hold together. The second implication I would have you to see of this absolute God is that uh, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. And we have we have seen this as we have discovered the authority of God. But I can't help but take you to Daniel chapter four and remind you of this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, a, a king who was very stuck on himself. He was a man who was filled with pride. He was a man who was filled with arrogance. And we know this from Isaiah chapter 62, or 66 rather, that God will not look upon a man who refuses to be humble, who refuses to be contrite and refuses to tremble at his word. James 4 puts it this way, that God resists the proud. Men, listen carefully, and this applies to women as well, but I want to address the men. Men recognize that if if you are filled with pride, if it is me, 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 instead of thee, 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 if you are filled with pride, God's promise to you is that he will oppose you to your face. He will oppose you to your face. Notice what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. This man who is filled with pride and arrogance, God says, fine, I send you out to pasture. And he spent years in pasture, and you'll recall from Daniel 4, his, his fingernails grew long, his beard grew long. He was like, a, he was like a, a homeless man who was out on his own for years and years and years. He was a mess, a man basically who was driven to the point of insanity. And Daniel 4 reminds us, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And what did he do when he lifted his eyes to heaven? He began to gaze at the transcendent God of the universe, the God who is preeminent, the God whose authority reigns above all. He lifted his eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Basically, what he says is this, I was insane Now I've come back to being a man of sanity. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. That is to say, if you're here this morning, you're filled with pride, you're filled with arrogance. Essentially what the Bible says is you're struggling with a bit of craziness. You're restless. 
You think you're all that and then some. And the scripture says, think again. And I would urge you, don't get to the point where God sends you out to pasture like Nebuchadnezzar. Notice here what happens. His reason returns to me. He blesses the Most High and he praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. As I read the rest of this passage, we listen carefully to the language of transcendence, to the language of preeminence, to the language of authority. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as account, counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar learned a brutal lesson, but God in grace and mercy brought him to the point where his reason was returned to him. I want you to see a third implication of the absolute God, and that is that he is distinct from the created order. This is a lesson that we have looked at in great detail over the last several weeks. The so-called creator-creature distinction. You'll hear it again. God The absolute God is utterly distinct from the created order. Finally, notice, uh, and, and related to the third point, I want you to see that he is wholly other. He is wholly other. That is to say, God is God and I am not. That's the lesson that King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. He came to the point where he was being worshipped as a god. And after God sent him out to pasture, he realized, God, you are God and I am not. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, remember the former things of old. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So if you're here this morning and you, you bring any kind of fanciful thoughts like there are a multiple gods in the cosmos, that there are more than one gods, remember this. There is one God who reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal from all eternity, co-equal to all eternity. Our great God is not only absolute, our God, our God is personal. And so I want to take a moment and, and once again gaze at this personal God. When we speak of the personal God, there is a, a, a word that theologians have, 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 have coined to help us understand it. The word is this. It's imminence. Imminence. That our great God is imminent. And as we learned about transcendent, we do this with our arms, that God is the transcendent one who is over and above the scope of the universe. When we speak of imminence, we see God coming down to wrap his loving arms around his people. He is imminent. He cares for his creatures. He is intimately involved with his creation. He, believe it or not, he delights in meeting your needs. He delights when we worship him. He delights when we serve him. And one of the great paradoxes in God's word is this. The God who Acts 17 says has no needs. He has absolutely no needs. He finds great delight when we praise him. He finds great delight when we serve him. He finds great delight when we go through difficult seasons of life and we choose to be humble. And we choose to trust him. I believe the most powerful example of the eminence of God is seen in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The one who 
has existed from all eternity, became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now go back with me to Isaiah chapter 57, and in my mind, this is probably the greatest place to remember the the dual exhaust truths, if you will, of transcendence and eminence, of the absolute God and the personal God. Verse 15, we've already seen the language of transcendence. He is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He dwells in the high and holy place. Mark this word, and. I'm so happy for the word and. Because notice what follows. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And you say, wait a minute, that sounds conditional. I thought God's love is unconditional. Think here for a moment. I am also with him. Here's the condition to the one who is contrite and has a lowly spirit. If you are filled with pride and you are anything but a man or a woman or a boy or a girl with a lowly spirit, here's the promise. I will not be with you. I will oppose you to your face because God hates pride. God is the imminent God. Now, go back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. And once again, for statements concerning the imminence of God. These are absolutely mind-blowing statements. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 11. And I pray that that the Spirit of God this morning would apply these words to your heart. Because I know some of you are here and, and you're going through something. You're, 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 you're mourning the loss of a loved one. You're mourning the loss of a relationship. You're, you've lost your job. You're struggling in life. Hear these words about the imminence of God. Remember the one we're referring to. He is the one who is high and lifted up. He is the one who is preeminent above all things. He is the one who is authoritative over all things. The sovereign one. And, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young Go back to Isaiah chapter, or forward to Isaiah chapter 41. And Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 is a section of scripture that has very significant and deep meaning for me. I heard uh, a sermon preached by John Piper several years before we moved to Everson. And I was walking through a season where I was battling fear and I heard this message by Dr. Piper and I listened to it over and over and over and over on this one section of Scripture. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, we need to come to terms with the very important reality that God is not only absolute, 
but he is personal. He is there for us. He finds great delight in comforting his people. He finds great delight in providing for the needs of his people. Now, it may or may not surprise you if I were to tell you that there are worldviews who deny the reality of a personal God. One example of a worldview that denies a personal God is a worldview, a, a religion called Kabbalah. In recent years, some of you have heard about uh, some of the presuppositions of Kabbalah, a discipline and school of thought that is discussing the mystical aspects of Judaism. Really, Kabbalah is, if I might say, a, a perversion of Judaism. It is a set of, of eye-opening teachings that is meant to explain the relationship, you see, of an infinite, eternal, and essentially unknowable God. Whenever you hear the language, the unknowable God, that leads one to believe he's not knowable, therefore he's not personal. And we need to come to terms with this. If he's not personal, he's not God. He's not God. So I want to take a moment and grapple with the implications now of a personal God. There are several. I want you to see that this personal God is the sustainer. In Colossians 1.17, we've already seen that Jesus is before all things and he holds all things together. In Hebrews chapter 1, we see both the transcendence and the eminence of God in one verse. He is the radiance of God. You hear the language of transcendence? He is the radiance of God, of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. Now notice the eminence of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Secondly, I want you to see that our, our personal God is the healer. He is the healer. You know very well the words from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. All indications that God is a personal God. Number three, I want you to see that our personal God is our protector. Second Samuel 22 two says that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Once again, God finds great delight in protecting and watching over his people. Of course, we know the fourth quality is that God is our shepherd. Psalm 23, that very well-known psalm that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We've already seen in Isaiah 40 that he finds great delight in tending his flock like a shepherd. Number five, I want you to see that this personal God is our forgiver. Our forgiver. You see, if God were not personal, he couldn't possibly forgive the sins of his people. Romans 5.1 said that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isaiah 43 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. Is that because God has a memory problem? If you're here last week, you know the answer is no, because our God is omniscient. He has comprehensive knowledge of everything, past, present, and future. And so it's not that he has a memory problem, but it's he chooses to forget 
your sin. Your sin is behind his back. Your sin is as far as the east is separated from the west. Your sin is buried in the sea of forgetfulness. God is the forgiver and he takes away our sins. And finally, and this is the probably the most important reality, is that our personal God dies for his people. For God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I've mentioned this on several occasions where from time to time I receive feedback. And the feedback goes something like this. We just continue to hear the gospel message over and over and over and over again. Thank you. Thank you. Because... My friends, we need to constantly go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that says God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, and that while me, Dave Steele, was a sinner, Christ died for me. He died for me. You see, in the gospel, we learn that Jesus became a man in real time and real space. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus fulfills the law of God for the glory of God. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus dies on a cross. There's the message that we should never tire of hearing, that Jesus dies on a cross to bring us back to God. And to forgive us of all our sins. And all of us who have banked all our hope and future exclusively in Jesus can bank on that reality. Our sins are forgiven. If you have not yet trusted Christ, the Bible says this. You are still in your sins. You are drowning in the guilt of your sins. You are drowning due to the penalty of your sins. And one day... Should you refuse to trust Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross for you, you will perish in your sins. You will endure the weight of God's wrath for all eternity. You see, that is the reality some preachers are forgetting to preach today. When I hear that God is not a God who will condemn people, I hear a preacher who doesn't understand the gospel. I trust that at Christ Fellowship that we would understand the gospel, that we would embrace the gospel, that we would see that God is a God who is the judge. He is the God who will judge unrepentant sin, but he is also a God who loves to forgive the contrite. He is a God who loves to wrap his arms around you and lead you through the journey of life and ultimately to lead you to heaven. Here's the truth point in very, very simple terms. And that is that I want to encourage you to rely upon the God, to trust upon the God who is absolutely personal. For you see, God is both absolute and personal. And I want to take just a minute to share, show some of the implications if one or the other is not true. You see, if you, if you have a God who is only absolute and I want you to think to yourselves without me mentioning it. Are there any world religions that believe that God is, God is only absolute but not personal? Yeah, I, I hear a few comments. It's one of the fastest growing world religions right now, even post 9-11, if you can believe that. Islam is one of the most, most popular religions right now. 
But Islam teaches God is absolute, but he is not personal. He is absolute, but he is not personal. I submit this to you. If God is only absolute, he's not personal, then he is a dictator. He is a tyrant. He does not delight in meeting the needs of people. He is not there for the creature. He is a God who is unworthy of our worship. But the converse reality is also the case is some world religions believe that God is personal, but he's not absolute. And I would submit this to you. If he's personal and not absolute, he is tender, but he is not triumphant. He, he is meek, but he is not majestic. And so you say, Pastor, which is it? Is, is he absolute or personal? The answer is yes. He is absolute and personal. And whenever we find a Christian book, as I've referred to several times, that focuses on God being personal but rejects his absoluteness, use your imagination, we are viewing a God who is an idol. That God is an idol. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards reminds us of the importance of maintaining both God's qualities of being absolute and personal. Here's the interesting thing. In the quote that I will read, he never once refers to the absolute God or the personal God. I want to see if you can dissect this and see what is absolute and what is personal. He says this, And would you choose to have a friend not only great, but good. In Christ, infinite greatness and infinite goodness meet together and receive luster and glory from one another. By choosing Christ for your friend and portion, you'll obtain these two benefits. Christ will give himself to you with all these various excellencies that meet in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. He will ever after treat you as his dear friend. And you shall ere long be where he is and shall behold his glory and dwell with him in most free and intimate communion and enjoyment. The greatness of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus. I had a, a boy ask me just a few days ago. It was a great question. Pastor, why do you like Jonathan Edwards so much? That's the reason I like Jonathan Edwards so much. Because he drives me to Jesus. It is not about Jonathan Edwards. It is about Jonathan Edwards who sends the church back to Jesus. And whenever we go back to Jesus, we're driven to the cross in humility and contrition. I want to close on a very practical and personal note this morning. And Jim, I appreciate the question. Jim was asking, Pastor Dave, how, how's Calvin doing? And I, I said to Jim, I said, uh, how about I surprise you? Because I'm going to mention this in the sermon. And then I got excited about it and didn't surprise Jim. And so let me uh, surprise the rest of you. Several weeks ago, once again, I, I came to you and asked for prayer for my friend Mike Martin and his son, Calvin, a 14-year-old. One minute, Calvin was a lively 14-year-old. The next moment, he's on an operating table in Walla Walla, Washington with a, a, a brain bleed and a life-threatening brain image uh, injury. I want to show you a photograph of, of Calvin that was taken on October 15th. So kind of put this together. Today is the, the 8th of November. On the 15th of October, 
This is Calvin. Uh, the prognosis was, was a very scary prognosis, and the church prayed. His friends prayed. When I went on this particular day, I couldn't even talk to Calvin because Calvin was unconscious. I don't know about you. Um, I don't do good with pictures like that. This is a scary picture. And I, I, want, I, want, I want to have you brace yourself for the next picture because it's really good. This is a picture that was taken on November the 2nd, last Monday. And it might be a little hard for you to recognize the man standing next to him, but that's my favorite quarterback, Russell Wilson. Uh, but what's interesting about the photograph is not being impressed with Russell Wilson. It's here's a 14-year-old young man standing on his feet without crutches, using his hands, using his feet, communicating with his mouth, And even though he has a long path of recovery, God has done absolutely miraculous things in the life of this young man. And here's the point. Calvin Martin has experienced firsthand the transcendence and the imminence of Almighty God. Please don't don't confuse the matter by only focusing on imminence. Because there is a lot about God's imminence in the days that he spent both at Harborview and Children's Hospital. God was there for him. God was comforting him. God was protecting him. He was there for his family. The stories coming out of the hospital have been absolutely miraculous. But don't forget the transcendence of God. That God is the king. He is the master. He is the authority. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over every brain injury. He's sovereign over it all. And Calvin has experienced the transcendence and the eminence of God. He understands in a deeper way today what it means to worship the absolute God and the eminent God. Oh, that each of us would experience God like this. May we experience the absolute God. May we experience the personal God. May we delight in both his transcendence and his eminence. And may we refuse to get caught in either either attribute. We worship him because he's transcendent. We worship him because he is eminent. We put the two together and remember to have a balanced view of God. More important than that, a biblical view of God. May God grant strength to you, whatever you're going through now, to worship God in all his glory and remember that he finds great delight in being there for the flock. That's his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the way that you're teaching us uh, about these great realities concerning your character. God, I pray that we would keep uh, these attributes in tension that we would not emphasize one over the other, that we would not minimize or maximize either one, that we would hold these intention and remember that you are the God of transcendence, that you are the God of eminence. I thank you, God, for the great love that you have demonstrated to us as your people. I thank you, Jesus, for the supreme sacrifice, the loving sacrifice that you made when you died on Calvary's cross. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have applied the work of Jesus to all of God's elect. Help us now to trust you more, to love you more, to have a passion to serve you, that the gospel would be at the very center of our lives. 
And God, I pray for anyone this morning who is exploring the claims of the gospel. I pray that you would uh, reveal yourself in all your glory as the word of God is proclaimed, as the word of God is read, as is digested. May you do a mighty work of grace in many hearts today. We trust you. We magnify you. We worship you on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.